If you got your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Quick review as you're going there. And again, I, I kind of encouraged you last week. Let me encourage you again this week. I'm glad that we have the resources, and I'm glad that we have media, and you can look up and read it on the screen. But there is nothing quite as valuable as holding a Bible in your lap and underlining something if, if the Spirit speaks to you about something. Or, or, um, so I'm just really going to encourage you uh, to start carrying your Bible Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And not just carry it, but open it on lunch break or at your desk or in the morning when you wake up or at night when you go to bed. Just read from the truths of God's Word and let it be encouraging or convicting, whatever God needs to do in our hearts. And then, guess what? If we would just do that all week long, it just comes natural on Sunday, Right? Um, and so I am speaking into my own household because I know my kids usually don't even bring a Bible to church. But let's, let's maybe get in the habit of carrying one and maybe a journal. Uh, I went to a conference this weekend. Some of our lead staff went to a conference this weekend. And uh, one of the treasures is that you get to write down nuggets, things that God speaks to you. I got a journal full of things here, notes that I've taken from Thursday night through Saturday afternoon, and I haven't even had time to sit down because at a conference, it's session, 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 and guess what I get to do tomorrow? I get to just kind of wake up when I want to because my kids are virtual, right, on Mondays, and, and then I'm going to open this journal, and I'm going to begin to just meditate on all the things that I felt God speaking to me about while I was away and allow him just to minister to me. Something very valuable in that church. So you might say, man, you said something Sunday that really spoke to me in the moment. What was it? And, and if it's anything like most of our, I don't remember. And you're like, well, I don't remember. And so the easy way to fix that is just journal it. And then we can go back throughout the week and meditate on it and just be blessed by what God gives us. So anyway, didn't mean to give you that little spill. But uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, Acts 2, quick review of chapter 1. Between resurrection and ascension, right? Jesus spends 40 days with his apostles teaching them, ministering to them. And we, we know from the text a few of the things that he was teaching them. Uh, right there in chapter 1, uh, it says that he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. He was continuing to teach them the values and the principles and the truths about the kingdom of God. He taught them about the spirit of God and his soon and certain coming. He taught them about the power of God and its divine purpose to empower the church to witness of Jesus everywhere through word and deed. And then he left them, right? He ascended into heaven and he left them standing there gazing, staring. Jesus ascends into heaven and yet he compels his followers to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy spirit so that's what they did 120 men and women gather in an upper room and they wait they wait and pray they wait and search the scripture being reminded of all the good things god said and did in the psalms specifically in chapter and they wait some more, and they pray some more. And that's where we find the apostles right at the beginning of chapter 2. In the very first verse, it says, On the day of Pentecost, 
All of the believers were meeting together in one place, just like they were in chapter 1. They were together in one place. Again, physically, that was true. But this is more than just physically gathered together. They were spiritually gathered together with one goal, one purpose. So 40 days between resurrection and ascension, but from ascension of Jesus back into heaven to the day of Pentecost was seven days. Now that might not seem long in comparison to 40 days or long in comparison to maybe some of the things that you and I wait for. But it was long in this sense that they were told the Spirit was coming and then they watched their Lord leave them. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they gather in this upper room and they pray probably with one eye open as they wait for the promise. And day one comes and they pray and nothing happens. Day two, nothing. But they keep waiting and praying. Day three, nothing. But they keep waiting and praying. Day four, day five, day six, nothing. But they just keep waiting and praying. But then day seven, Dr. Luke says on that day, Pentecost comes. And this isn't really part of the sermon, but I think it's just there's an encouragement here in this wait that for us, in our seasons of waiting, may we be faithful to wait through prayer and the seeking of God's will through his scriptures. Maybe you've been waiting longer than a week for God's promise to be fulfilled in your life. Just keep waiting and praying waiting and seeking him through his word his promise if god promised it it will come to pass so wait faithfully chapter one was about the promise of the holy spirit the power of the holy spirit the purpose of the holy spirit the patience of the apostles as they wait for the holy spirit and then chapter two and we're into the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give us a definition of Pentecost, okay? This isn't Webster's. This isn't all the other smart people that decided to write a book about words. This is maybe my definition according to what we've studied so far in Acts and where we're going. And here's the definition. The Spirit of God poured out on the people of God to empower them for the mission of God. Okay? So when we talk about Pentecost, I want us to think of it in the sense of this. It is the Spirit of God being poured out on the people of God so they can be empowered for the mission of God. All right? That's what we mean when we talk about Pentecost. And verse 1 says the moment of Pentecost had arrived. This moment is hands down one of the top three most important moments in redemptive history. Okay, we'll give one to creation. It was first. (laughs) God created mankind in his image to reflect his glory. We'll give number two to the substitutionary uh, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. 
But come on, man. Number three has got to be Pentecost. The birth of God's New Testament, New Covenant Church. So in our remaining time, we're not going to look at a lot of verses this morning. Well, that's a lie. We're not going to look at a lot of verses in Acts 2. We're going to look at about 12 verses here, and then we're going to be all over the place. Uh, But in our remaining time, we're going to see how Dr. Luke here portrays Pentecost with three defining characteristics, just in these few short verses. And the first one that we're going to look at is that Luke shows us that Pentecost was dramatic. It was dramatic. We see it in the very first word of verse 2. They are waiting together in one place suddenly. Can you imagine that? You're on day seven, and you're starting to pray, just like you did on day six, and day five, and day four, and day three. Maybe by now you've closed both eyes because you just, you don't know it's coming, but it's probably not coming right now, but we're by faith praying and believing. And as they're waiting and as they're praying, suddenly, hmm, suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like a roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting again day seven starts the same they're still waiting they're still praying and then suddenly a sound from heaven like a roaring windstorm then he goes on in verse three it gets more dramatic then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them so we got 120 flames of fire falling On everyone in the room. Luke does not mention the images of wind and fire by accident. Throughout all of scriptures, the presence and the work of God is described through the imagery of what? Wind and fire. Right? We see wind... Maybe most notably in Ezekiel chapter 37. Did I put that in the computer this morning? Can we read this together? It's about 10 verses, I believe. Here's here's what happens in Ezekiel. It says, the Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the Spirit of God to a valley filled with bones. Let's just roll through these. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. Get that imagery. They were scattered everywhere across the ground, and they were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Hey, by the way, here's a good answer. Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. In other words, if you will it. I can't do anything about these dry bones, but you can. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles, tendons, and I'm going to cover it all with skin, and I'm going to put breath into you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together. 
How cool would that have been to watch? And they begin attaching themselves bone to bone, muscle to muscle, tendon to tendon, and skin begin to form just as the Spirit of the Lord had spoken. They attached themselves as complete skeletons, verse 8. Then as I watched, the muscles and flesh formed over the bones, the skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. What a miracle, man. We have just seen dry bones go from dry bones to dead bodies, which is pretty remarkable, right? Like all of us would probably brag if we could have done just that, but it's incomplete because what's the difference between a dead body and dead bones? They're dead. Verse 9. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds. Son of man, speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. One more verse, verse 10. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into the bodies, and they all, and they all came to life, and they all stood up on their feet. And there wasn't just dead bones. Now there's a great living army. And notice there was not life in the bodies until the wind came. Implication is that only the Spirit can give life. And just as God, by His Spirit, breathed life into dead, dry bones, He is also breathing life and wind into His church. I love the imagery again. Not really imagery, but in, in, uh, in uh, the book of John in verses chapter 19 or 20, Jesus is speaking peace over his followers, and then he commissions them. He sends them out, and it says this. He, he breathed on them. So they weren't being sent in their own power. They were being sent by the living power, the Spirit of God. We also see that imagery in fire. In Exodus 3, something pretty remarkable happened. There was a bush, but there was lots of bushes in the Old Testament. What was different about this bush? It was on fire. Probably lots of bushes on fire in the Old Testament, but this bush was on fire and did not consume. It did not burn up. It was just, and Moses knew immediately, this is not just a bush burning. This is holy ground. God's presence is here. You see it in the wilderness. The children of Israel led by a cloud during the day and what by night? A pillar of fire. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, I don't know if I put this one in there, did I? Matthew chapter 3, I did not. Let's, let's read it together. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. John the Baptist says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with... And in Acts chapter 2, that is exactly... What is happening? 
the imagery of wind and fire represent and announce the triumphant arrival of the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 4. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. The first few verses of chapter 2 remind us that the apostles were not in charge of strategically planning the events of Pentecost. Rather, Pentecost rushed upon them suddenly as they were waiting and praying. It rushed upon them suddenly with a divine power from a sovereign God. And it does seem a bit uh, peculiar to me that immediately upon being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is immediate supernatural manifestation. Each person began speaking in other foreign languages. And don't miss it. The text says that ability came from the Holy Spirit. Obviously. You and I don't start just speaking fluent other you know, German or without studying for a really long time. And so if I start speaking in fluent German today, it is not of me. That's what's going on on the day of Pentecost. And here's what I wrote down. Because this is how my mind works when I read this. The Spirit falls. And the first thing they do is they all start speaking in these. Why that manifestation? Like out of anything God could have chosen to do with his newly spirit-filled church, his 120 people represented and they're all babbling in a language that maybe they don't even fully understand. Like, okay, here we go. Are they hearing it in their language and yet it's coming out in, in a different language? Are they, we don't know, there's some mystery there and that's, that's okay. But out of all the possible manifestations, why this one? Well, verse five. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Man, God is so awesome. When they heard this loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Why would God choose this manifestation? Because... There are many people living in Jerusalem that speak different languages, and I'm sure there was a barrier. We'll talk about that in a moment. Whether they were able to speak fluent, the, the current language, or, or what, here they come running to this noise, and what they actually hear is their native language being spoken by men that were probably not known to be speaking their native language. Not only was Pentecost dramatic, but we're starting to see that from the very beginning, Pentecost was to be universal. I think Acts 1-8 makes that apparent 
But now we're seeing words of the Great Commission of Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 being manifested. Look at verse 7. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. This global dimension of this event is magnified by the list of nations that I am going to try to pronounce in verses 9 through 11. But we just need to understand, we need to see this. This is a global movement that is starting almost immediately. God be with us. Verse 9. <laughs> Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia. Was that close? Yeah. I've been saying Pergia. It's Phrygia. Yeah, whatever I just said. Um, Pamphylia, Pamphylia, Egypt, I got that one. And the areas of Libya around Cyrene, Cyrene, visitors for Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages. Guys, this is a miracle. speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. Two things here. First of all, they heard the apostles in their own native language. That is amazing. But notice what they heard being spoken, the wonderful things that God had I'm sure it was the entire story of God from creation through the nation of Israel and by what's getting ready to happen next week in chapter 2, I'm sure he didn't leave out the work and person of Jesus and all the things God had done through him in just the last few days. But I want you to hear this. The purpose of every manifestation of the Spirit of God is to boast only in the message of God. When do we see the gifts of the Spirit starting to be abused? When the giftings of the Spirit are no longer boasting in the God of the Spirit. God's plan was for his mission to be universal from the very beginning. All the way back in... In Genesis chapter 9, the flood waters, right? They rescinded, and we have God who really recommissions or really re reminds Noah and them of the covenant that he had made with his people. And there's a command that God gives to Noah and his family as they come off the ark. Does anybody remember what it is? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth. He told them that several times, right? Be fruitful, multiply, 
and fill the earth. And then I want us to read. That was Genesis 9. I want us to read just a little bit from Genesis 11. It'll be on the screen. You can write it in your journal and go back and read it later. But in Genesis chapter 11, listen. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the what? Same language. Using the same words. Verse 2. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they, they what? What does that say? Is that what God told them to do? Did God say, go find you a nice little lot of ground and settle? No, God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But apparently now they're just going to fill this plain in the land of Babylonia. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for murder. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves. Whole sermon there. With a tower that reaches into the sky, this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. The problem is the command was to be scattered all over the world. And so God comes down. And he looks at the city and sees the tower and he sees the people building. And he says in verse 6, look, the people are united and they speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7, come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. Verse 8, in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. And in Genesis chapter 11, confusion filled the earth. A barrier was placed between nation and nation, people and people. They could be in the same room, but they would never be able to understand each other because of their disobedience to God's command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. A language became a barrier between nations and it remained that way until Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, in this one miracle, for the first time since Genesis 11, all people, all nations are hearing the same message at the same time, and they understand. That is remarkable. In this moment, by the Spirit of God, everyone was hearing the same message about the work of God. No barriers, no confusion as far as language goes. The Spirit did that. The Spirit of God did that. Just as Jesus said to his followers that his spirit would empower them to witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The day of Pentecost signified the reality as the nations of the world gathered to hear about the mighty works of God in their own languages. Pentecost was dramatic. It was meant to be universal. And the third thing is this. Pentecost was divisive. I was going to use the word polarizing, but it seems like that's all they use this weekend at the conference. So I didn't want it to sound like I was copying them. Polarizing, but that just means this. It was divisive. 
Look at verse 12. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they ask each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. Because everybody knows when you get drunk, you can speak fluent other languages. How much, how much sense that... We'll, we'll try to reason away anything of God's moving. Well, many were amazed. Others were perplexed. Everyone was trying to make sense of this supernatural event. And I love the two questions that come from our text this morning. And it's really the desire for events that have us, that I hope that we have events happen in our lives that bring us back to these two questions in verse 7. How can this be? It doesn't make sense. It's unexplainable. Wouldn't you like to see some things happen around here where we have to ask, how is this happening? I'm tired of everything that the church does being that we're able to just explain it away. We need God to do some things that we're like, I don't know, it's him. Nothing else makes sense. How can this be? And then in verse 12, what does this mean? I love that question. They're wanting to understand what is going on. By the way, they would soon receive their answer to that question, starting in verse 14. That's next week. You've got to come back. And yet others were there in the crowd. They were mocking they were being dismissive of the miracle. They're just drunk. <laughs> what was happening here in Acts chapter 2 is exactly what Jesus said would happen in Luke chapter 12. In, Luke, in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 51, it says this, Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. That doesn't sound like Jesus. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. One more verse. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. But understand they're not dismissive or they're not divided because of personalities or they can't get along. <laughs> they're divided because some have pledged allegiance to Jesus and others won't. Jesus says, I've come, and now some are going to see me, and they're going to bow the knee, and they're going to worship me, and others will mock them. And it will be that way and from now on, and that is what we're seeing happen right here on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is fell, and we've already seen the manifestation, this miracle happening, and some are going, oh my goodness, this is blowing my mind, and others are going, eh. They're just, they had too much mad dog or whatever they had in that day. I don't know. I don't even know if mad dog is still a thing. You see, the gospel reorients our allegiances and we bow our knee to the rightful king, Lord Jesus. And that message, the message of the gospel is a divisive message that continues to divide Christians from the rest of the world. And it will continue to separate Christian and non-Christian, believer and non-believer until the end of time. So, really quick, three observations from this text. 
Uh, number one is that I believe we see that there are two responses to the miracles and the messages of God. There's two responses. One, we can be amazed and we can pursue the meaning and the, we can pursue the purpose of why this is happening and how is this happening and what does it mean that this is happening? Or number two, we can stand perplexed and we can be dismissive and we can just say, no, 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 there's not, it's meaningless. This is void of any purpose. There's, this is insignificant. It's just somebody's a little too emotional or somebody, you know, uh, and they'll try to logically explain it away and it'll make, make about as much sense as a drunkard being able to speak German when they've never been able to speak German. Church, let's always be questioning and pursuing. Let's become amazed again at the work and person of Jesus Christ. So let's stand amazed. And it's okay to question as long as we're leaning in, as long as we're moving forward. How can this be? I don't know, but we're going to keep pursuing God as we ask that question. What does this mean? I don't know, but we're going to continue to search his scriptures as we continue to move forward on the mission of God. There's always two responses to the miracles and to the message of God. Number two, Pentecost gives meaning to everything. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing is insignificant. God is at work redeeming the world to himself through every opportunity of the church to witness of him. And guess what? Every opportunity is an opportunity. Every moment is a moment because we're never off duty as spirit-empowered agents of the gospel. And so when you go to lunch today, if you go out to eat and you see that your waitress or your waiter is a little down, you can try to encourage them in the spirit of God. Or you can just brag and boast on them because of their good service towards you. You can... Be reminded in that moment that as your waiter and your waitress has served you well, Jesus has served you well, and it can become a little time of worship there at your table as you're eating. Or, or maybe this week when some family member or your child or your spouse does something that reminds you of the gospel, you can see it as a, a moment to celebrate the witness of Jesus in and through them. Listen, there is no pause button Every step that I take is a step I, taught, I take empowered by the Spirit of God. That means every word spoken and every deed done has the opportunity to be life-changing for someone who God is speaking into their life. The third observation is this. This was my favorite for us. Pentecost strips us of every weak excuse we have to stay inactive on the mission of God. Pentecost strips us of every lame, weak excuse of why we want to stay sidelined in God's mission. So many Christians with so many weaknesses, can I get an amen? And we have so many excuses of why God shouldn't use us, why God can't use us. 
I would like to be more active in sharing my story or sharing my faith, but I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing and I'll doom somebody's soul. You don't have that much power. I would like to pray out loud at the church, but I'm, I'm embarrassed that I'll say the wrong thing. I, I would love to get more involved, but I'm too busy. I would like to read and pray more, but I'm too distracted. It's like we completely ignore the first part of Acts 1.8. All we hear is that we're called to be a witness everywhere in all of these places. And we have an excuse of why we can't in Jerusalem and why we can't in Judea. And, and I'd love to give more around the world, but I just don't have the finances. And we, we have every excuse underneath the sun. And we forget about, but you will receive power. Translation, God knows you're weak and you can't do it. God knows that in your own power, you can screw things up. God knows in your own power, you don't have the words to pray. But in the power of the Spirit, anything's on the table. And so when the Christian says, I can't, what you're saying is God can't. Or you're saying you're not empowered by the Spirit. Pentecost strips away every excuse. I can't. Yes, you can. Not by your own power, but by the power of God, you can. I'll never be able to pray out loud. You can by the power of God. I'd never be able to stand up and speak the truth. of You could in the power of the Spirit. If God can make... hundred and twenty people stand up and start speaking in a language they've never spoken before. What can he do through you? Same spirit. Same mission. Same church. We can't. The spirit can and the spirit will if we would just surrender our lives. We're gonna come we're going to end our time this morning by coming to the Lord's table. We're going to take of the bread. We're going to do so in remembrance just as we are commanded to do. We're going to do so in remembrance of, of the broken body of Jesus. The punishment that he took upon himself. We're going to do communion in just a moment. We're going to do so just as we're commanded. We're going to take the cup and we're going to drink of the juice in remembrance of Christ's blood shed and the new covenant that we have. But I also want us to know that as we, as we are going to consume the bread and the juice, I want us to do so understanding that we have been consumed by the Spirit of God as well. And that just as communion reminds us that our guilt and our shame and our sin has been taken away by our King, Lord Jesus. That we have the Spirit of God in us that has stripped away every excuse. Every excuse that you have and every excuse that I have and every excuse that we have as a church. Everything, every excuse that we have of why God can't. We're taking this morning in confirmation of being reminded of, yes, we can. By the broken body, by the blood shed, by the promised Holy Spirit that now lives within us.
we take of this communion in remembrance that we are the empowered church of God, filled by the Spirit of God for the mission of God. We have no excuses. God can and God will do anything through us if we will just submit.